You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kostelarsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, just like uh, the last few weeks, we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format because we have an absolutely fantastic guest joining us, namely Harold DeBoer from TransTrend. Harold has been on the podcast before, and I'm sure you will agree that this is the perfect time to have him back to discuss all of the things that are going on at the moment. So let me start by saying welcome back to the show, Harold. We are really delighted to be speaking with you today. And of course, good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hope you are both doing well after a busy week, no doubt. Uh, very busy. Busy week. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Harold. Very nice to meet you. Good afternoon, Niels. Hope everyone is doing fine. Sure, absolutely. Very nice to be in the show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have lots of things to talk about uh, with you, Hal, but what Morris and I normally start out with is just to uh, like a little market uh, wrap in terms of what happened this week uh, from a lens of, uh, of the trend following systems that we uh, work with. So uh, if you don't mind, have an extra sip of your coffee uh, or your water <laughs> and then uh, Morris and I will do a quick rundown. Um, and from my part, I mean, I normally do kind of a, a bit of a market wrap. I'm going to keep it really short to two things. One is, of course, in terms of market moves, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this later as well, perhaps. Um, but energy was certainly in the focus, as was Lean Hawks, uh, by the way, in terms of uh, magnitude of moves this week. But instead of doing a, a, a market wrap, I just want to encourage everyone to perhaps uh, who have the the uh, subscription to Real Vision. I was watching an interview yesterday with Nouriel Rubini, and I have to say it's quite a sobering uh, account of what he expects might happen. It's kind of going from even a greater recession from what we saw in 2008 to a greater depression from what we saw in the 1930s. And of course, he has... Uh, a, a long list of arguments for why that may happen. So instead of me babbling on about, um, you know, what happened this week, I just think it's a good thing to uh, just open our eyes to uh, some of these um, thoughts and opinions from people, because if indeed he's even remotely right, then this is just the beginning of something much bigger than we can even imagine. And, uh, and that's going to obviously impact all investors, their portfolios, and of course, in particular, uh, maybe a strategy that we are working uh, with, uh, such as trend following. So anyways, Moritz, what caught your uh, attention this week? Uh, and um, yeah, how how things, generally speaking? Actually, that same video. Um, as a subscriber to Real Vision, I think I watched that on Tuesday or Wednesday nights, the Dr. Doom interview. Um, you know, you, you come out of these interviews, I always take them with a grain of salt. I mean, it's it's very nice to, you know, listen to those forecasts and kind of like get a spectrum and a feel for what could actually all go wrong. And sure, it could, but it doesn't mean that it actually will. So let's see how it plays out. I mean, in the current market environment, there's uh, it, it's, it's easy to paint it all black. Um, it's equally easy to say, oh, we're on the on the back of a recovery and the bull market has started. Honestly, my opinion is, I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, let the prices dictate what comes next. Really, this this is what I'm what I'm doing. 
And this is what my system has been doing this past week. It's been a good week, um, not spectacular. I mean, plus two, two and a half percent, something like that. And most of that actually coming from the meat markets. So being short hogs, being short live cattle, those were the biggest peanut producers this past week. Um, I've lost money uh, quite considerably on um, my short energies positions, especially crude oil. Uh, crude oil is massively volatile at the moment. It had a substantial rally on Thursday and also a strong rally yesterday on Friday on the back of, uh, you know, President Trump intervening and suggesting a meeting of the OPEC plus on Monday, which, by the way, it seems is not going to be held um, according to the latest news that I've picked up just an hour ago because Saudi Arabia and Russia don't want to meet on Monday. They need more time to prepare it. So let's see uh, where that price is going. It's been volatile, not only the front month contract, uh, the outright contract has been volatile, but also the time spreads along the curve, which is something that you don't normally see in that fashion. You know, the, the calendar spreads behave normally uh, a bit better, but in the last 48 hours saw everything from, you know, June to December being completely repriced in a very volatile fashion. So it's, it's a market to uh, to have an eye on. It's it's very interesting. Um, yeah, so that's it. But uh, I'm I'm happy with the way my, uh, you know, my, my trading. Um, when I compare that, I've mentioned that last week to long only buy and hold, buy and hope in equities. Uh, it's looking really cool. I'm up uh, 5% this year. And this compares very nicely to, I would say, most of the institutional portfolios out there who aren't up 5% this year. <laughs> True, true. Yeah, I mean, on our side, I would say it was another quiet week, uh, slightly positive. So that's always nice. Obviously, the themes have been the same, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, for the week, our biggest contributor, for sure, was Lean Hawks, which is quite interesting that you can have these relatively small uh, commodity markets uh, have a meaningful impact on on performance. So that's really nice to see. Of course, we also gave back some money in uh, our short positions in, in energy. Um, but then, you know, kind of towards the end of the week, uh, there was some nice... Uh, um, you know, moves in, in currencies where the dollar started to uh, gain a bit of traction and, and, and our positions uh, was, you know, rewarded for that. So all in all, um, continuation of what we have seen on our side during uh, the month of March, which is relatively low volatility in returns, uh, risk very much under control. Um, and um, yeah, uh, opportunities uh, across many different sectors. But let's leave it for uh, this week in terms of market wrap because much more importantly we have Harold on this week and uh, which is fantastic um, I don't think people uh, need any introduction to you Harold because you're a legend in our industry and uh, and so is Transtrend um, and, and of course people can always go back and listen to um, the previous interviews um, that we've done uh, so I want to jump straight into it if you don't mind Harold I mean March, since this is so uh, clear in our minds um, still, um, we saw from a trend following perspective some of the biggest uh, return dispersions that I've seen in a long time. I mean, I've, so far, I've seen numbers from plus 31% to minus 12, all coming from what I would consider established managers, managers with a long track record and not just, you know, five or $10 million under management, let's put it that way. So I just wanted to start out and, and hear kind of your thoughts when you when you hear this uh, and, and how you feel in general. 
our space as a whole have kind of responded to um you know as we were talking about before uh, we pressed record i mean how we've responded to something that certainly wasn't in our data set i mean no corona crisis uh has ever happened to the world before so uh, i just want to start out with some of your overall thoughts uh, on this well the um the the wide diversification or the, the wide variation between different trend following CTAs or CTAs that used to be trend following is in itself a very good sign. Um, I think one of the weaknesses of the last years is that let's say the CTA industry became big by many independent traders doing independent stuff. Um, and these different stuff collectively brought something that you could call trend following returns but the basis of it was that these different traders did different stuff they did do the stuff differently um, if you could reproduce these returns uh, analytically by very standard things but you could also realize that if all those CTAs would have done exactly that it wouldn't have happened because then there would have been a market impact that's much too large um, over the last decade, there has been a period that uh, this standard thinking has become kind of the leading idea that it should be like that, which isn't very good. It has to be different training doing different things. And um, I know in, in the past we used to be highly correlated with another CTA, our returns were, while what we said and how we thought about the market was exactly opposite to what many of the things they said. And that's good, that is healthy, yeah. because yeah. then you are considered to be correlated. Yes, we are. And maybe underlying we're profiting from the same thing. But at the same time, we're doing different things. And a market, a healthy market, need different participants doing different things. Also CTA. So this, there was a whole idea that it would be good, that it would be something like the CTA index or a CTA industry that have an index and that they try to outperform. But that's really undermining the whole success of CTAs. It should be people doing different things. And that's what we see right now. I would say in trend following, underlying trend following, there's two basic uh, principles that made a lot of trend following CTAs do well in typical crisis scenarios. One of them is, and that's the one that's mostly preached about, that is the more classic stop and reverse kind of idea. That looks from individual market position, kind of telling, well, if a market that was going uptrending reverses to a short trend, a trend following CTA will reverse its long position into a short position, and then if the decline continues, profit from it. Um, this is a nicely and easily understood idea and it especially sells well when you kind of bring the idea that the reversal is done at the top which of course is not the case it's always after the reversal so then that is first this is lost there um, this is an easy understood story but that is not the really the story that explains all uh, trend following returns it's very important that most CTAs are not trading one or two markets. They're trading a diversified portfolio. And the diversification aspect is another element that makes trend followers CTAs often do well in crisis scenario, especially in a scenario where in the crisis come from one space of the market. So for instance, in the oil crisis, Russia crisis in the 90s, it was first the oil prices where something was happening and that 
big decline of oil market ultimately uh, resulted in Russia getting into problems and that resulted in a broader stock market collapse. CTAs, trend following CTAs did well in those periods, not by being massively short stocks, although maybe they would have said they were, but now they made most money <laughs> by being short oil already. So by being close to the source of the, of the crisis. The same in the credit crisis. This is typically a crisis that of course did not start in stock markets. It only came into the stock markets in 2008, but it started in the interest rate markets. And most CTAs doing well in that period were not making most money in short stocks again, but they're making most money in those interest rate trends. Um, different CTAs are making different choices. Uh, Transcend has been extremely aiming at this diversification element always. And with the last few years, we've done that even stronger. Um, this has, in certain uh, crises, this has an advantage. In other crises, it's a disadvantage. And typically for this one, because the coronavirus was something that is not happening from within the market space, but from outside. Uh, we did not have a large long positioning coronaviruses or something. It wasn't possible, we wouldn't even want to have it, but <laughs> you don't have it. Uh, this was something that came from outside and overwhelmed the market. Well, in this situation, a strategy that uh, tries to profit from the diversification element uh, doesn't have direct the, 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 the big results from reversing markets and that continue, but doesn't do much more than keeping the losses limited, what's happened to our portfolio during most of March. Only during the end of March and the first weeks of April, now can you see that the impact of this crisis is that different markets start to move different directions again. Uh, new kind of trends, uh, the different stocks, let's say the Netflix kind of stocks are doing well because people stay at home and are watching television, uh, while other stocks are doing not so well. Um, so there's now a new diversification coming on again, and that, that's more the scenario where our strategy is better aimed at than the uh, reversal from outside. Yeah, I mean, just before uh, uh, Morris jumps in on this, I just want to follow up with, with a question here. I mean, I agree with what you say. I think that there has been uh, certainly a convergence in terms of managers, uh, their returns. They, be, they they looked more similar compared to maybe, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But I just wanted to ask you then, what do you think that they did to look more similar? And what do you think might happen now or, or, and, and do you think we're going back to managers starting to become more different again because oh, they, they have this... started to become more different again Let's yeah. say different uh, CTAs have really made different choices we all know about Winton that has really chosen to go away from we see some CTAs that are really doing a lot into machine learning strategies in which they are stepping away from uh, from traditional trend following uh, ideas uh, you you can use a strategy for a trend following strategy but you can also use it for other ways so there is there is now the last few years there's this uh, a very healthy diversion diversification yeah. within the cta's again yeah uh, the, the different cta's really made different choices yeah and of course it, sometimes these things can actually be quite hard to uh, to spot, I think, because a lot of people will just look at the correlation and 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 correlation might be high between two managers, but returns can be very different. Yeah. Um, so so it may actually take a little bit of time before investors realize 
that uh, that there is more choice now um, because I've heard that many times people saying oh we already have a trend follower we did we don't need another one uh, I'm not so sure that's a, a good uh, that's 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 like, absolutely not true anymore and, yeah, and uh, yeah. uh, it, it it really helps and also correlation can be for a short time eh? but I said in 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 the past already in the 90s there was one CTA that was very much correlated and the performance were very much alike but at the same time the story was completely different and, the, yeah. and then we came in 2001 2002 and then all of a sudden the, the returns were completely different which wasn't that suddenly because those returns matched to these different ideas mm. and in yeah, that sense it's, it's maybe better to listen to the ideas of different managers than to just look at the outcome of it because the outcome is uh, is something that is more shorter term and tells less then the idea is tell, especially when you get in a situation that you have not seen before. What are you thinking this Saturday, Moritz? What's on your mind? That's all very interesting. You know, the um, CTA is changing their style. Like Harold said, he mentioned the name Winton moving away from trend following or reducing the weight of trend following in their overall system setup and uh, adding more equity exposure, equity factors, long short equity. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but it's definitely more in that space. Other CTAs implementing machine learning or artificial intelligence techniques into their trading programs. I sometimes question, and this, I, this is this is purely a question. I'm not stating anything here. To what extent is that done in order to create a better sales story? Because machine learning and AI is something that's that's very fancy to talk about. I'm not smart enough to understand what it is. I don't think that long enough track records exist in order to really judge statistically judge the quality of a decision to make a change. Um, and I believe that with pure price-driven trend-following trading track records, which exists for 40 plus years, like you know, Niels, right? This is a very, very stable statistical body of evidence that's very difficult to overrule and say, I'm going to ditch it only because we've had five difficult years. So is it, you know, I think CTAs can become diversified, trend-following CTAs can be diversified and still be trend-following CTAs by choosing markets differently, by choosing risks differently, by choosing entry and exit signals differently, by choosing holding times differently, this, that, and the other thing, combining systems. It doesn't, it doesn't require you to make a change necessarily into machine learning, but maybe from a marketing and commercial point of view, that is the right thing to do if you want to sell and have a story well, yeah. around it. There, there's two different things. There is, There has been and always has been, let's say, the framing story and what's really being done. And uh, machine learning and all kinds of hypes have been there that were not often not really a difference. The, the, the first ones that were really successful with using machine learning techniques already in the 90s were not really using machine learning. They They were wanting to use that term and what they did was limiting the possibilities of the machine learning strategy so much that it exactly did what they had decided to do already well that's a nice way that you can say we are doing machine learning but essentially you're just doing what you wanted to do anyway but for marketing purposes you can do so heavily supervised machine learning you see this the same thing let's say when it's about esg also uh, a hype uh, you can use ASG and, and, and terms and uh, talk about it while still doing exactly the same thing. You can also decide to do things differently. Um, 
the idea that uh, you don't change at all is also not really true because we all know that in the past we all were trading on the trading floor and the trading floor is no one standing there anymore and in this situation it's very good because suppose all people would still all these brokers would still be standing on that trading floor 30 centimeters away from each other that isn't exactly corona friendly i would say um so <laughs> in that sense there has been a big change and that also makes that some of our strategies you could say the under basic underlying ideas can still be the same but the way they are executed is completely different so doing a backtest that 30 years ago is, is completely meaningless in that sense. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about this topic, I mean, I think what you bring up, Moritz, is, is very valid. And I think the this is one of those periods where investors, as much as as much as managers, we, we have a chance to to look at the choices we've made. And, uh, and, and without a doubt, uh, there are people who have... Um, uh, evolved in the direction you mentioned with machine learning and alternative data and all of these things, uh, less liquid markets, whatever it might be. So we now have a chance to look at, okay, what actually happens to these strategies uh, in a situation that we uh, can certainly say is unprecedented uh, and we haven't seen it before because, as we talked about earlier, it's always different. And 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 from my and this is early but this is early still right the data is still coming out and and by all means this is not over yet but the early indications to me is that some of these newer techniques aren't really as robust as you uh, would have liked them to be or as some investors probably would have been led to believe that all of this uh, magic happening uh, inside the computer with very few people knowing what it's doing, that that's better. I mean, we can talk about people from our own industry. You mentioned a few names, and and, and, and certainly I, th I would say that some of the March results we're already seeing um, shouldn't really have happened, meaning that that's not what they were trying to do for sure. Uh, we see with people, and this is from from picking it up from the um, from the newspapers, people like Renaissance Technologies. I mean, their equity uh, strategy was down. I don't know, twenty twenty four percent, which might be a little bit better than the S and P. But you know, again, for people to, who are you know that clever, um, you would kind of hope that they could deliver a different uh, profile in 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 my view because. Why else would you pay high fees? Uh, so, That's so right. I think it's it's a really interesting period because I think you know, and and I'm hoping, of course, even though it may not come true, I'm hoping that people will start and give these classical trend-following strategies that are not they are simple in some ways. They're not easy to do. Um, but they are maybe simpler in construction than some of these, um, you know, other type of quant strategies that we actually get the credit that as an industry that we deserve, in my opinion, because I think what we really do is we take something which is highly complex and we make it simple. And I think that process is what, you know, requires a lot of sophistication on our part. And yet again, we see that... Um, we can deliver something uh, that is is very robust. Now, of course, we we, we can talk about long-term trend following versus short-term managers because obviously the short-term guys, to some extent, frankly, have been beating up trend follows a little bit ahead of this, saying, oh, you're never going to deliver what you used to deliver because markets have changed and and what have you. And 
and so far I haven't seen any evidence that that's true. I think um, in February 2018, which wasn't a crisis, clearly short-term managers to some extent did a bit better, not massively better. They did probably a little bit better, but I don't see as an industry that playing out in March manager by manager there will be some great short-term returns but so will there be some great long-term trend following returns um so i think there's so many so many things we can learn and so many things we need to discuss uh, and i can't wait to um to hear the reaction from from investors uh, you know what they're thinking about uh, all of this because you know things have changed it's been as it's been a tough 10 years or so uh, for for our our part of the space because we didn't really have anything to show when people were making these claims um so yeah I, that was just kind of yeah, random thoughts you know the 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 uh maybe vs industry in the past um have made a mistake by too much embracing the idea of a black box it wasn't ourselves bringing that idea, but this idea was doing very well. And ultimately, it's not good to just say, well, it's a black box and uh, you take it and look at the profits and uh, that, that, that should be it. Uh, I think that was a bad idea. We, it's, it's very important that we tell what we are doing. And, and if you also tell different things, it's even more better. And if that different doing, making different choices leads to different outcomes, that's even better. And of course, th- what you do want is that these outcomes do fit with the story. And that's that's the most important thing. And, and as such, um, uh, yeah, you talked about the short-term traders or the longer-term trend followers. But I, I think that we should be somewhat uh, reluctant in using these even these terms. If we, we just talk about individual managers, what choices do different individual managers make? And and the more, uh, more they are different from each other, ultimately, as an industry, we'll be, we will be doing better. Okay, I I I agree with that, Harold. But what help me out here? How do we change the conversation? Because what people what what people love to do is to put things in buckets, right? So yeah. either you're a trend follower, or you're a short term manager, or you're this, or you're that. So how do we? Let's move the narrative. I mean, you write some wonderful white papers. I know lots of my clients and prospective clients who who rave about them. So you know, so so you you have the gift of the gap when it comes to putting words on papers. How do we change the narrative? What do what should we be talking about? How do we differentiate? Because again, when people hear the word trend following, they often think we're doing more or less the same thing, and they they say, oh yeah, but there's only like five ways you can do trend following, right? So help, 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 help well, me out th- here. There's, there's a choice yeah. here because if you um, if you write a story, if you do tell something, do you choose to tell the story that fits within the box? Or are you willing to tell the story that goes outside the box? And ultimately it's best to, and but for a short-term uh, marketing point of view, it's often better to stay within the box, especially when the box is doing well and when the thing is popular. So there's, there's a consequent, um, let's say, uh, mismatch between what's the best story to tell and what's making the best profits. CTAs as industry, we have done, uh, we have delivered our best performance in the period that we were completely non-accepted. Yeah. Uh, if someone at the university uh, wrote about trend following, he had to tell it was it wouldn't work. 
and that's why we did do well. So if we want, uh, we did well by because we were prepared to do something and to tell stories that people didn't believe and didn't want to hear. Well, for selling point of view, that's not that good. But ultimately for performing, daring to tell the story that people do not really want to hear, um, but if they think somewhat deeper about it, they think, hmm, could be true, ultimately it's the best thing to do. That's with all yeah. uh, changes in, in, in society. Uh, anything changes. It's, it's uh, Let's say the elderly people were not waiting for a mobile telephone, but they're all, all using it now. Yeah. Um, but but even my mother, my mother didn't want to be, be on the screen on the telephone. She didn't want her face on the telephone. My nephew had to keep calling her until she accepted it because now my, the, the children are not visiting grandmother anymore. Yeah. But now she has contact because she had to choose. Yeah. If we yeah. if we make our storyline such that the people that are not really willing to accept different things are most enthusiastic about it, we will not end up in doing things that ultimately will be the best. But how do we avoid investors ending up with the least amount of exposure to trend following right at the point where they need it the most? I mean, this is what happens when you when you kind of stick to your story that nobody wants because, you know, frankly, we've seen the industry shrink. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, yeah, we can we can certainly tell the, and I, I'm, you know, I'm obviously agreeing with you. I mean, we can tell our story and people may not like it. They might think someone else has a better story and they're going to go invest with that yeah, convergence but when, when strategy. Our, when, yeah. when, we, when we narrowed our story and we didn't do it ourselves, it was more the newcomers that were narrowing the story. Uh, when we were narrowing the story too much, it ended up in becoming a period in which we as a whole, as a group, did not do well. So narrowing the story isn't... It, it may be for short term, it may uh, attract a lot of money to the industry, but it ultimately doesn't result in performance. So we have to be willing to tell the story that is a little bit aside from what people directly expect. Sure. What is, Harold, if I can ask that, what is the the trans trend story or would you say is also good to not really have a story and not do this you know i have this unorthodox type of thing and you know maybe maybe it's good enough to have no story and say look we're we're using techniques with a broad enough brush so that when we apply to price data which as you said markets change all the time the mm -hmm. you know the pits are no longer there that's fine you know we're also making changes slight changes through our trading systems and you know there's a little bit of evolution going on but nothing is so overly optimized that it becomes that is it loses robustness right it, yeah. it's it, it it works with different market regimes so what what really is the story? This this by itself is a great story. So what what else do I need to tell people? Well, no, that can well, what, be. A, what, what, that, what does trend that, that can be a story. Well, our story is that uh, market is not something that are moving away from society. That what's happening, and and we are not. Uh, we we do not believe in a world that is not changing. We say that a constantly changing society is the main driver for all kind of trends. Well, if people wouldn't have chosen to use uh, computers for everything and to use internet, then of course uh, Nokia wouldn't have become large and then small again, and, and later on uh, Apple wouldn't have. It's these large trends are the outcome of big trends in society. And 
we have to connect to that. Uh, we, we can say, let's say in the past, we were doing very, very well and making lots of money on trading Atsuki red beans on the Tokyo exchange, the Tokyo crane exchange. It was a lot of different exchanges at the moment. And we can tell that story, but it's better to understand why was it doing well and why can't we do that anymore? That's much better to understand and a much better story than telling, well, a history, it turns out it worked and it will continue working. No, that market is just almost not traded anymore for a good reason. We made money for a reason in those markets in those in that period. We cannot do that anymore. We made a lot of money in uh, in Europe in interest rates market in the period coming on to the when the euro came. It did cost that big change led to a lot of trends. But that's, these typical trends will not return. We will not see uh, the French uh, currency coming close to the Dutch currency anymore because we have the same thing. So it, can, it cannot happen anymore. So it's, our story is then to get away from this idea of a black box and computers just finding trends, but try to make the connection. Look, what we try is to be connected to what's happening in society and try to pick up the trends and make choices for that. And among those choices, choices are changing the markets that we are trading. The, 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 we, we trade markets like now that we didn't trade 10 years ago. And most probably in 10 years from now, we are going to make profit in markets that we are not trading right now. Yes. So it's, that's, that's, that's an important element. The portfolio changes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, Maybe maybe related to that, Harold. Um, I've picked up that that you're using synthetic markets, um, yeah. which I'm not sure how many dimensions you're using. Whether that's a simple spread, two-sided spread, or whatever. But maybe you can explain to the audience a bit what it is that you're doing there, and maybe give, if you can, a concrete example of one of those markets and how you're looking at that. Oh, there's there's many variations of it. Well, the mo the most simple one is the ones that probably many uh, CTAs will do. Uh, you can trade the euro versus the dollar, and you can trade the Canadian dollar versus the dollar. You can also trade the euro versus the Canadian dollar. And the best thing to do that is by combining the euro future with the Canadian dollar future. That's a very simple one. And these trends are different. The advantage of doing a lot of those is um, what often happens is since most currency futures are listed or quoted in the US dollar, uh, and if you trade only those, you end up having only uh, US dollar risk concentration. You're either long US dollar or short US dollar often. If you forget that the dollar is in it, then it's not that uh, you don't even see it. Um, many people think that they don't trade the dollar, but they are trading it a lot, even in many commodities. Can you, we trade oil. But should oil necessarily trade it versus the US dollar? Or can we trade it versus other currencies? Wouldn't it be more relevant to trade it versus other currencies? So there's many commodities that we trade, we trade it versus other currencies in a synthetic way. So there's another way, instead of a cross rate, you, get, you combine a, a commodity with another currency in, in one that is more relevant. What do you use as evidence for that being for that working, so to speak? I mean, what, what are you looking for um, to see that that actually is a better thing to do? I think the reason I ask is because we we have, there's a few topics on this podcast that really gets us going in terms of, uh, um, you know, nice, friendly, but heated discussions. Um, one is vault targeting. That's always a good uh, oh, topic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, the other one is this thing about should you trade 300 markets or should you trade 50, 60 markets and so on and so yeah. forth 
I seem to remember when uh, when you were on the podcast a couple of years ago that you talked about, and I could be completely wrong here, that you had gone at some point the way to say, okay, let's just trade as many markets as possible, 300 plus markets. And then uh, more recently, you had started to bring that down again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Tell me, t- t- tell me a little bit more about okay, that. Okay. Well, um, uh, trading as many as possible markets, uh, typical also is a marketing thing. Look, we trade okay. 500 markets right now, but uh, still some investors are doing, managers are doing that. Uh, you see people telling stories about that they are trading South American cranes, uh, South African cranes, sorry, South African crane markets. Well, that can be a nice story. But no one is ever going to make $1 million in one of those contracts in a month. Because these contracts are very small. So it adds to the number of markets trading. But once you have decent size, it it isn't really counting. Um, There are some markets that can be traded large, but you have to do it differently. For instance, electricity markets in Europe. When we started to trade power, we traded, I think, eight or nine different uh, contracts. So in our list was nine contracts of power. Look how many markets we are. But all of them, we traded very small because the way we were trading them couldn't really do it. Then we realized that we could trade some of these markets much larger, but then we had to trade them large and use other ways of executing them. And uh, so we brought down the number of power contracts we were trading but at the same time the size of our power trading has been growing significantly so mm-hmm. that that's that's an element so instead of saying okay add more markets and it's it will bring more diversification now it only helps if you can take uh, sizable positions position. in those markets yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. some of these alternative markets are very small some of them are just uh, almost having the same trends as more liquid other markets and it's just more expensive to trade them. Well, let's say lumber is really different markets. And of course, it would be great if, if the lumber market would be much larger. But there is sure. many small markets that are really not really adding something, no, no other trend. So it doesn't really make really sense to, to trade those markets very large. So it's it's uh, we have to make more uh, choices there that what we do not want is to trade as many as possible t- markets, but what we really want is to be sizable invested in different trends. Well, we can get more sizable uh, invested in a power trend by trading less power contracts and trading them bigger than by trading more power contracts. When you talk about that, I kind of get the feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I kind of get the feeling that in order to do what you uh, are explaining, you need to go off exchange in certain markets. Yes. Um, of we, course, they're, they're, the CTA they're, clear, they're cleared on exchange, the execution. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, because, I mean, that's one of the things that obviously I've also noticed over the years that one of the things that, that kind of happened, uh, and also I guess it's obviously a function of size, when, when certain managers become, um, you know, at a certain size, they, they have to go off exchange. But one of the things that CTAs kind of, as an industry has been built on and what I think we've, which has stood as well over many different crises along the way is the fact that we are, you know, very liquid, you know, exchange driven, yeah. no counterparty, unnecessary counterparty risk and all of that stuff. How do you, um, how do you think about that? And how do we, I mean, let's imagine that the Corona crisis is just what pops a much bigger problem, mm-hmm. right? For the financial industry. And, and therefore at some point we're going to bring 
bring in the banks uh, to all of this, which are, by the way, down like 95% mm-hmm. as a banking index since the last crisis. They haven't really recovered. Uh, it, it, so even though they say that they're stronger than they were going into the last crisis. Anyways, I mean, that's a different risk element, um, of course. So um, how, do, how, do we think, how do you think about it and how do we avoid, um, if, you, if you choose to go off exchange, um, how do you avoid uh, taking on too much of, of counterparty risk? Well, you have to, again, we, we all, most of the things you do, except for some um, uh, currencies, OTC currencies, but most of them uh, we clear as a futures. So there's no counterparty risk. It's okay. the execution, the way liquidity works has been changing over, over the years. The same in stock markets, but also in, in many futures markets. And uh, there is different ways. Let's say the, it, it's very well known in, in, in the currency markets that you can do an EFP. Yeah. Um, so you can, uh, I, I know in the past there had been a period that um, CME published their open interest numbers on the on their slotty contract and we called them and said well your open interest numbers aren't right and they say how do you know well our position is larger than that um <laughs> and it was on cme um but of course we didn't trade those contracts on screen cme but we did it efp way well yeah. that's where the liquidity is, is is different from market to market in, in currency markets there are often much more liquidity not in the future, but you can do it via an EFP or a block or another way. Um, and in that sense, it doesn't really matter how large that futures contract is, but still, you do not have the counterparty risk only yeah. from an execution point of view. Of course, you have to be very careful because you do not want to end up in a situation that you get liquidity problems. Um, but as we've all learned from the, um, uh, from the credit crisis, uh, those liquidity issues can be a problem also when you're using uh, give-ups. If one broker doesn't accept the give-ups from another one, you still have a liquidity issue. Yeah. So yeah. it's liquidity is something that has to be watched, but uh, liquidity is not something that you should look at by just look at the open interest and the volume on exchange. Uh, that is Correct. only one element of liquidity. You can source the liquidity in different ways. Um, yeah. You know, we're doing that with the... Uh, unrelated to this to this program but you know some of the single stock futures you would source it in yeah. an efp type of way in the cash market and cross it into the futures yeah. contract at the end of same the session thing. same thing and um but one thing about the the central clearing i mean most of the 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 absolute vast majority of the risk that that we have on is centrally cleared yeah listed centrally cleared not even otc centrally no, no. cleared but um, I want to make the point that, you know, with all the regulation that has been going on, forcing more trade and more volume to become centrally cleared, maybe that in itself at some point in time is a risk that and we're at that point kind of like kindly overlooking or maybe not thinking enough about. Uh, because in our experience, there's never been a real stress and crack in that market. And you may be getting... Uh, more diversification and maybe stability if you feel comfortable operating you know with an ISTA confirmation and a CSA and you have you know exchange of cash collateral under that CSA with different counterparties on a daily basis uh, and therefore more widespread distribution of your credit risk as opposed to concentrating it in one clearinghouse 
No, but that, that's that's a really issue. If you on on our website, you can find a story written by our uh, head of uh, risk management, uh, in which he responded to a concern on systematic risk by the Dutch National Bank, and uh, the clearing houses becoming too large and growing too too big is one of the I think seven elements of of. Uh, systematic risk that can happen. Another one is p uh, different CTA of different trades, too much using the same execution strategies, for instance, is also systemic risk. Uh, another one is using the same failure risk measurements is also systemic risk. So there's many ways that uh, systemic risks can happen. And often these systemic risks are the outcome of regulators trying to solve the last crisis. And they create Correct. a new uh, systemic risk. It's a very relevant uh, issue to, to look at. Um, and, and that's one element that in all the choices we make, we have to be very carefully that we are not adding to systemic risk, but are somehow... Correct. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't even look at that. They take it for granted that if yeah. you're trading on CME, that that is the safest way of doing things because it's always been done that way and therefore it doesn't <laughs> require a second look. And, you know, I... I'm not saying that this is, you know, it, it's bad to trade on CME. On the contrary, I'm just saying, you know, be aware and mindful that, you know, at the end of the day, you have a very concentrated risk in clearing houses. Yeah, but, you know, when, when the um, when the CME one and a half year ago uh, kind of was putting all marketing in their Bitcoin futures, mm. we addressed them and said that we found that a serious issue uh, because these Bitcoin futures were cleared in the same box as all the other futures and there was very much an, uh, uh, a bubble going on there that was blowing bigger and bigger and we found it wrong that uh, other futures uh, contracts clearing could be harmed by investors losing too much on bitcoins yeah i mean they they, they put up what huge initial margins on on the bitcoin futures i yeah. think in response to that right where you had like you know 75 percent of the contract as initial margin or something like that right so I, d I don't mind people making making or losing a lot of money in bitcoin and and some people will lose uh, more than they have on it but it's bad that that results in problems in other markets. Some brokers require full collateralization yeah. of the thing, right? So you kind of like have to pay up front. There's no leverage. You just pay for yeah. the notional value Which is of the very contract. Good. It's very good. Um, one one other thing I wanted to I, I want to really come back on on the on on the markets, uh, Harold, because we had this on a previous episode where we, uh, you know, we're speaking about um, diversification benefit and correlation, and so. What I understood from from you is that really you are removing markets from your portfolio solely because of liquidity reasons. If the market is not meaningfully liquid and therefore cannot be traded with a meaningful size in your portfolio, you may drop it because it doesn't really add much to the bottom line. And this is a point that I understand. You know, if if yeah. you know you're trading a billion dollar fund, um, well, you know, there's only that much that you can do in lumber. Period, yeah, but we still right? trade lumber. So, there's no problem. But okay, fine. But, but because so, there's but, no but, alternative for it and we cannot trade it large. But right, right, we're not right. going to trade a market that we can only trade small while we can uh, capture from the same underlying trend better in Co a more liquid Correct, correct, correct. But, but the, the discussion that we had here was, um, say, you're say you're looking at the petroleum or the energy complex, right? You're looking at heating oil, gasoline, crude, brand, correlated markets, right? Yeah. For the most time. Maybe a little bit of less correlation this past week, but you know, over longer periods of time, positively correlated markets. Yeah. So 
would you ever say, and, and you know, I, I had this, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm trading all of those markets. I will trade heating oil and I will trade WTI. They're yes. correlated. I know that, right? But there are points when they're not correlated. So I will give them, like in my overall budget, I will adjust, I, I will, you know, take account of that positive correlation and the sizing will respond to that, you know, if I have them both on long at the same time, for instance, but still I will trade them. There's no way I will exclude that market from my portfolio because I know the correlation is not perfect, which means the correlation is not one. And every time this is true, mathematically true, this is the golden rule of diversification, mm -hmm. right? There is, a, that there is a benefit that you can harvest from yeah. trading them both. And that improves your risk-adjusted return. And if I'm, I'm not accepting a view that says, oh no, I'm not trading heating oil because it correlates uh, with uh, crude and I want to have a more sizable position with crude. Yeah. No, no, we are, we are trading heating oil. And we, are not, and we are not only trading heating oil, but we are trading different contract months of heating oil nearby and further away because they can be different as well. As we and, have seen. Yeah. So now it's, it's very relevant to trade all of them, but then to realize yeah. that it's just one trend. And there's a very nice thing we can do with that because um, as an active trader, we can also be a liquidity provider. And what we are doing more and more is when there are differences in these different contract months of things that are exactly the same, we prefer to buy the cheap one and to sell the expensive one while trading the same trend. So you're trading the spreads? Uh, yes. Now we are not trading the spreads. Uh, sometimes you're trading the spreads, but if, if you are long... If you are long and you potentially want to buy more, then buy the cheapest one. If you potentially want to sell something, sell the expensive one. Uh, you mean on the same contract, but you know a different point in point point of delivery. A different point of delivery, or let's say on a different uh, marketplace. You 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 can you can trade a Nikkei on on Singapore. You can trade a Nikkei on Tokyo. You can trade a Nikkei on, CME. on CME. Correct. Yeah. Um, why why would we choose on forehand that we want to sell it on, let's say, Singapore, if we know that the only way these, this contract is liquid is because there's some short-term trader that's making money by being your counterparty on Singapore and find another counterparty on, on Japan? Fair enough. Then that profit the shorter-term trader makes is something that we rather keep ourselves. Speaking about the trading, I, I, I absolutely like the idea of trading different contract months and that's one of the things that I'm doing. Um, obviously, depending on the market that you're looking at, uh, there's a couple of things that you need to look out for and especially in commodities, it's seasonality and stuff, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, of summer, course. winter spreads, uh, different harvest grain seasons, you know, those type of things. Absolutely. It's uh, difficult, easy to be to become trapped up there if you don't know what, what that means. Um, but Speaking about the trading of those markets, you've mentioned that you've moved to becoming a liquidity provider. I think this is what I've heard. And liquidity provision yeah, yeah, to yeah, the yeah. markets means that um, you're placing orders into the limit order book. If you want to buy, you're placing a uh, an order into the limit order book to buy at a level that is lower than the current market price because that provides liquidity and vice versa. You're doing it with a sales yeah. order. What happens if you don't get filled on your limit order? I mean, at what point do you become aggressive and start chasing the market? And to give you an example, it could be the crude, the crude crash uh, that we had mm -hmm. uh, three weeks ago, right? So say you yeah. wanted to go short, 
right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So now you're placing your sell order at, you know, 46, the market is at 45. Well, the next open is at 32. What do you do? You didn't get filled. Yeah, well, well the, let's say uh, a pure liquidity taker decides on forehand what number of contracts he wants to buy in exactly which contract bond, in exactly which time, on exactly which exchange. So then you fix all parameters. And then you're sure your liquidity premium payer. Um, the more variables you keep open, so what number of contracts exactly, at what moment exactly, in which contract month exactly, on which exchange exactly, the more parameters you keep open, the better we can work as a liquidity provider. And we have this choice. It's it's not our system doesn't say you have to buy on the open or on the close. This buying and selling on the close at the moment is, is really terrible uh, and also destroying the, the 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 value of many markets. The settlements of some markets are really terrible. Look at LME. It's bad. So it's, it's something that you can avoid. Right. At, so, at, at, at the and, risk and of course, of and, and and of course the element is there. The let's say the more we like to buy oil the more aggressive we will be and the less we like to buy oil the less aggressive we will be but it's no it's no zero one decision it's no binary decision we are buying thousand and we will buy thousand yeah so at at, at some point i guess you know you will honor the signal and if your signal is you want to you know short oil then you will have a short oil position in one way or yes. the other. And some, you know, but you, you, we, we will try to avoid selling it at the moment that everyone is selling it. Exactly that contract month that everyone at that moment is selling. Yeah. So speaking, I mean, this this is a very interesting topic with um, the way liquidity and and trading behavior, micro market structure, you know, has changed, focusing more on settlements and closing prices. You know, increased liquidity in task markets and all of that. Um, yeah. What's your concern there? Well, look at the valuation. It's 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 really an issue. The the some settles are so way away from what's the really underlying value. It's also hurting the underlying markets. Um, let's say stock markets. They, when they are mispriced, it's not that bad because it's only investors that care about it, and they don't make other decisions than investors do. But commodity markets, the the, the commodity markets, they are the, the backbone of why futures markets exist. The, the futures markets trading started on commodities, wheat, cattle. Uh, some of these futures markets are more than 100 years old. The whole element there is that these prices lead to uh, a well-priced discovery. This has been a, an issue on uh, on CME already with cattle. There, the, 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 the price functioning element was completely gone, and many of the underlying uh, fun, uh, the, 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 the hedges, they didn't trust the futures markets anymore. Well, at that moment, we really have an issue with such the futures markets. If, if the market as such doesn't function anymore, let's say in coffee, there is many physical commodity traders that make long-term agreements with, uh, with farmers to buy uh, an amount of coffee for a price that is uh, connected to the settlement of the contracts on ice. If this future contract, the settlement of it, is disturbed by someone that is banging on the close on such a coffee contract, then it harms uh, directly those farmers. They will not be willing to do that a- anymore. And that means that the futures contract is losing its basis. 
And when the underlying traders, the underlying producers and 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 and, and uh, users do not trust that market anymore, we as market participants are doing a very very bad job. It's our task to make these markets function, and banging on a settle, which has been done a lot, is is a type of market manipulation that uh, no one should be proud of, and that regulators should have a better look at. The the amount of discussion and the claims that have been towards banks about LIBOR, well, these settlements, these LIBOR settles, weren't that much uh, disturbed. The ones in LME in this moment are much more disturbed. It's just that regulators are not really willing yet to step in, but they should. Who are the people held, in your opinion, who are causing these heavy trading around settlement prices and all that? And the reason I ask is because, as far as I'm aware, at least, if you take a trend-following strategy, um, the returns wouldn't ma- change a lot, even if we delayed our entries and exits by a day yeah. or two or three, right? So it's probably not our industry doing it. So I'm just curious, who do you think are causing this to happen? Who do who do regulators fear, need to I take fear a look it's, at? It's 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 the ones that have shift that have uh, let's say split responsibilities. So let's say a trader, a trade is not making the signal, but the execution of is part of it. So let's say if you are a fundamental trader and you believe that a certain market that is at this moment trading at 98 should have a value of 100, then you could make the decision to buy. But if you uh, do not do that execution yourself, but you outsource it to another participant or another another player or another desk in your own office um, it could end up that the person buys the, 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 the contract at a price above 100 and then of course is doing something that is opposite to the own the, the original trading idea well if this participant gets his fill judged against the settlement and is doing better than the settle because he was banging it on the close and he bought it at 101 and then it settled at 102 this execution desk will say we did a very good job we did one better than the settle so it's great Mm. but the ultimate decision maker has been doing something in an indirect way which is opposed to his style it's so generally believed at this moment, very widespread, also among regulators, but also among uh, many people in the in, in science, that um, that execution has no market impact, that they are not willing to look at this. Mm. So it's kind of the markets are uh, are automatically uh, they're working out automatically uh, because they are efficient. So uh, you as an investor have the right, and, and especially private investors have the right to get a good price. Oh, it doesn't work like this. It is only because all of us are willing to bid and willing to offer. And mm-hmm. if we step away from that, if you're just throwing market orders uh, and trading against settle, for instance, yeah, we are not doing a good job for the market. And this ultimately will harm us because no one of us is, you can say, okay, we are trading this futures contract, but if ultimately the, the hedges uh, and, and the commercials are not willing to trade the futures contract anymore because it doesn't, it, it has completely lost its match with the underlying market, then uh, we cannot trade that contract anymore either. You know, so it's, it's a responsibility of us to, to make sure that we we are there in the market and we can and we have the right to 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 profit from it by running trends and so on it's nothing wrong with that but it's not our job to 
destroy the market or to make it dysfunction. I, I, I agree with that. Now, in, you know, years back, um, without all the almost 24-hour electronic trading sessions and the pit still open, the trading days and the trading sessions were much shorter. You know, a yeah. couple of hours, that's it, right? Maybe a lunch break in between even. Um, let's, let's take this to an extreme point and say a market is only open for one auction a day. That's it. There's no intraday trading. Everybody has to trade, you know, yeah. in one concentrated period of time that produces the settlement price. All the liquidity is there. Would you like that? No, because that would happen if the people trading in these auctions are uh, not bringing in price-insensitive uh, orders. The big problem is that too many participants are also in auction bringing in price-insensitive orders. So they are willing to buy against every price. So the, the big issue at the moment, there's this, this discussion with um, equity traders in Europe that want shorter trading hours for equity markets. And one of the uh, one of their uh, arguments is that uh, then they have more time to uh, look at uh, special events numbers of the, of the stock. Uh, the company gave uh, dividend numbers or uh, quarterly results, and they can have a better t uh, more time to judge those events and to find a good market price. Um, well, this sounds good, but then think about when the ECB is gathering and making a change to the interest rate. They do it when the futures markets of uh, interest rate instruments and the currency is just open. It's just trading. And it's no problem at all. Labor numbers coming out. It's no problem at all. The futures markets that are trading at the moment when information, important, very relevant information come out, are very good in uh, processing that news. Because the only ones trading at those moments are the ones that are active traders that are willing to sell at a certain price, willing to buy at a certain price. These passive traders that throw in orders to be filled at every moment will not throw in that orders exactly at that moment. They do so on the opening or when the session starts to trade. So when news has been coming out, you often see extreme price moves on the opening and then it finds an equilibrium. When news comes out through during market hours, you have a less extreme price moves in there. So the market functions better as long as there is no passive participants in there. If you have only one auction period, then you have constantly, during every moment, available moment, there is these passive, these passive ones are in there. Correct. I mean, I think you know what you're saying is um, if, if only active traders that had a real interest and a real need to be participating in the market participated in that one single auction, that would be fine. But because of yes. price insensitive passive money that needs to track and benchmark against the settlement or closing price, and they don't really care where that price is, yeah. then that's a problem. Um, so the same, I think you can then say for the in, in the cash equity markets where you have an opening auction and a closing auction, if there's yeah. price insensitive flow hitting the opening auction or the closing yeah. auction, that will also be a distorted price at that point in time. Now there, probably nobody cares that much because, you know, you're not selling coffee or any like, you know, physical goods. Anyway, let spinning that in a more like maybe a general question, which, you know, every once in a while... Um, I get asked, or maybe we get asked as an industry, and in a more like uh, in a, in a challenging way, is um, you're trading those futures markets in the commodities, the agricultural markets, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Long or short, we're in both ways. Um, yeah. Are you really doing anything that 
would harm the producers or the farmers or impact um, impact the, the way the commodity. Are you doing anything that's bad because you're trading coffee? You know, this or, is the or, German or, question. It Morris. is, yeah, but, but you know, in, in the, the context, in the context of ESG, I know it is, but it's probably also <laughs> yeah, yeah. a Scandinavian question and probably also a Dutch question. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It's like you know, you're, you're participating in those markets, but really, yeah. you could say you have no business doing that because you're neither a cotton farmer nor are you a, a, a milk producer or anything like that, right? So, so what yeah, are you yeah. doing there? And you can always come back with the argument, well, you know, we're long and we're short, um, we're providing liquidity, we're helping price discovery. But I sense that for many people, that argument is just not good enough. And they will say... Yeah, but that's okay. But here again, uh, ESG is, is, is a very interesting thing here, because um, if you want to make a good decision that's best for the environment and best for the, uh, the the functioning of market and so on you end up a more complex story and if you want to make an easy story you make the opposite decision so for instance there, um, in commodity trading there is some uh, pension funds that said uh, we do not want to trade long oil futures anymore because oil is uh, is uh, what is it fulfillment uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it's not making it's the earth a clean. It's scarce right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, um, but it's, uh, and we only want to trade uh, agricultural commodities, and they trade them long only. While trading long only in agricultural commodity futures is absolutely stupid. Also from a market functioning part of uh, way, but also from an ESG point of view, it's a more complex story because what people do want to hear is you know what we are long wheat and by doing so we add to feeding the world well the only reason why there is futures markets in wheat is that there is investors uh, speculators required or investors required that are willing to take the risk in wheat and the risk is wheat is that there is a, a crop get lost to too many rain or no rain at all and then the price will explode so the risk premium normally you get in agricultural crops is by being short so passive investors that are long, passive long in crops are harming the market instead of adding to it. In, 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 so that's something we will never do. But it's also very relevant in this thing, and that's the choice that we made, is uh, much of this trading in commodities is done via uh, commodity indices. And in these commodity indices, there's a very mixed element is it is oil markets there together with let's say cocoa or sugar and so on well cocoa and oil have nothing to do with each other so we have made the, the decision a few years ago that we do not want to trade those indices we are not trading them anymore any commodity index we no, trade cocoa I, I think we trade oil we trade all these commodity markets but we are not willing to trade commodity indices because they are harming the market and, and make the market dysfunction instead of helping them function yeah, I think that is that is almost. I mean, I, I, I agree 100%. Because what what is a commodity? A commodity, every single one of them is really different. Yeah. And uh, so putting them in a basket and calling this commodities is like an oxymoron because you're trading yes. a basket of things that is really diversified by itself. Yeah. Why would that be a good basket to trade? It's it's you know it, yeah, you so need to take them individually. You could you could make the same argument even for an equity index. And oh, say, there's, you know, there's some equity index that we stop trading as well. That's Same basket, but yeah. um, so with the you know we're we're not 
if, if there's a producer that, you know, a farmer, a grain farmer that wants to sell his or her wheat forward, right? Yeah. They need to find a buyer. Yeah, but that. why would a farmer want to sell his wheat forward? Well, to, for instance, uh, reduce price risk, right? And price uncertainty. Yeah, but he will, the, the thing is, a farmer will only do so. Then once he will have the risk of production. Right? Yes, so that that's the thing. So this so, idea that that the farmers are the ones selling forward is 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 a misconception. Uh, the farmers aren't the ones that are willing to sell. They they only want to sell when they are sure that their own production has become a success. Exactly. So it depends on what time they want to do it. If they're very yes. uncertain, they want to sell when they know that they have the grain and it's a good a good yeah. crop, right? Which they can harvest, say, in you know four weeks' time, they may want to lock in the price and you know sell yeah. the, sell the futures. At what point, you know, you would need to find a speculator to pick it up at a discount in order to be enticed to do that trade. But yeah. I agree with that. It is a highly dynamic function. In yeah. every market, it's different. We're yeah. on both sides of the market, depending on the trend. We're not hoarding commodities away from the market. We're not keeping the coffee in our garages no. so that it rots, right? And nobody can drink our, coffee. Our role is to to be able to 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 willing to bear short-term risk. Exactly. Uh, that that's a role of an investor. We are willing to add, to to add to the price discovery process. So we should not dis disturb that. Process and we're reducing to to spreads, process. and we add liquidity. So yeah. It's it's a sensible function, I think, for us to be participating in the And we have to take that function serious. And if we do so, we are we are fulfilling our role, and we have to be willing to explain what our role is. And sometimes that can be that we do opposite thing that than people on first hand would expect. So how can you get it out of people's heads? And it seems to be so chiseled into their brains that policies exist for institutional investors, which are firmly in place, where they decided we're not touching agricultural commodities. They say it's yeah. no longer allowed. No coffee, no cotton, no cocoa, no sugar is yeah. allowed in our portfolios. It's not, not that many yet, but yeah, there is. Oh, quite, well, I think there's 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 no, quite yeah. a few, and they're really large, right? So yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're not doing that anymore. And it seems to me that around the year 2010, when commodity prices were higher, something hit them and they were told yeah. don't do it and they immediately believed it without questioning it. Yeah, yeah. And no, then, in, around 2010, there was, there was, there was, uh, we, we spoke uh, last pension, uh, I was giving a guest lecture on, on ESG, commodity trading, and the professor there was working for a big pension fund. Uh, in 2010, this pension fund had been uh, attacked by the media for trading agricultural commodities. And now, because oil trading was wrong, they suddenly uh, were thinking about trading only agricultural commodities and stopped trading the oil. So it's uh, an, an, a media attack that within 10 years they had to make a 100% turn uh, or 180 degrees turn. It's, so it's a very strange, strange thing that can happen. And what it's all about is that uh, people are willing to explain what they are doing. And this is something that you see happening in ESG in stock markets already. When it started it was a lot like it was only exclusion. Uh, we do not trade in uh, weapon firms, we do not trade in cigarette Tobacco. firms and so on. It was just exclusion. And now what you see is that the countries where it started, they start, have to, they start to make more choices like, oh no, it's dependent on the way they are traded. So this, this, this hard exclusions that is still, it's only the, let's say the, last participants that suddenly want to do ESG because they are forced to, they choose an exclusion policy. 
but the ones that are ahead are making a better choice. They are saying, okay, what is the role of this specific market? What we are doing is writing a series of articles on it and, and explain what we, what kind of choices we make and why we make those choices. But again, that is something that takes reading 15 minutes maybe. And for many participants, they want to know a simple thing that can be solved in five seconds. Well, for the five-second public, we cannot make any um, reasonable and uh, a choice, a responsible choice. Uh, responsible in investing always starts by taking time to think about what we are really doing. And if you do not want to spend time thinking what we are really doing, and if you want to work for investors that do not want to spend time thinking what we are really working, really doing, then we cannot respond in a responsible way. Um, just in, in consideration of time, of course, um, we don't want to um, overstep our welcome when it comes to, to your time, Harold, but I'm sure we have a few more questions we want to uh, uh, go through. Just staying on the point of market, and maybe we'll move on to other things. We've talked a lot about markets specifically, but just one, one maybe one point about markets that I wanted to bring up. I think back um, around 2012, 2013, I think you wrote uh, a paper Uh, called hay fires and self-heating yes. and um, and and I think the question you were talking about or, or from memory that it had to do you know that this big question we hear from time to time have markets changed yeah um, have markets changed Harold? markets have changed and they will continue changing on a technical way uh, and and markets change because uh, society is changing And if markets would stop trading, stop changing, they would stop trading. So they exist because they are changing. Just like you and I, we are living because we are moving. Once mm. we stop moving, we will stop living. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I think it all, it all, it always changes. And yeah, the only thing that doesn't change is that it keeps on changing. Yeah. <laughs> true, very true, and and you know, and this is also why I think sometimes I'm kind of uh, puzzled that people find it so difficult to um, um, agree that um, a, a a healthy or boldly sized allocation to a strategy that essentially at the core, um, you know, exploits change rather than a lot of the other strategies that like stability. Um, that that isn't a good idea to be in the uh, in in a portfolio, and that's another thing I wanted to bring up with you. You know, last time we had uh, a crisis that people remember was, of course, back in 2008, 2009. Uh, for a short time, uh, it was great uh, to be a CTA in terms of interest. People loved to uh, talk to us, and uh, you know, we saw a lot of money flowing uh, our way as an industry. Um, it also changed quite quickly um, people got disappointed so we had redemptions going the other way after a year or so um, maybe back then uh, you know this was before actually um, you know Katie came up with the word crisis alpha so I don't think we can blame it on crisis alpha and then you know no crisis uh, and no alpha so to speak <laughs> but But how do we avoid getting into that same situation? I mean, I'm sure there's always already some managers who see redemptions because we're liquid, we've made money, we haven't lost. So now they're using CTAs again as a kind of an ATM to to uh, pluck holes elsewhere in the portfolio. But but more importantly, how do we think about it a little bit 
differently this time so that we don't end up hopefully now having a good time, people renewed interest in what we do. Um, how do we avoid another 2009, 10, 11, where we just saw disappointed investors leave the industry? No, and I, maybe think, we... I think one of the things that happened at that period was before uh, CTAs were not accepted at all, uh, certainly not if the large public. And then in response to that success, there came an easy understood, very simplistic story. And uh, we all, also uh, also our investor relation people uh, added to that, embraced that story a little bit too enthusiastic because it was a success. And making this somewhat narrow story ultimately was the good thing. There was much more nuance in it. And uh, as long as we were willing to tell about the nuances and, and these different elements, uh, then we have a much longer lasting story. But that was typically what happened there was this 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 easy understood, uh, well embraced story was uh, yeah, we even uh, started to believe it ourselves. And, and, <laughs> and that's a bad thing. It's good to be yeah. able to explain things in a simple way. But if we start to behave like that, it um, it's not a success. Yeah. So it, it's yes, it, it may not be seem that complex what all of us are doing. But it's a little more complex than just, let's say, one or two factors, and that's it. Another thing you write about, I think you've written about in the past, um, is, you know, robustness, the importance of robustness, as far yeah. as I recall. And now I think people, and I, I talk about robustness as well. I mean, I think that, again, we talked about this earlier today, that some of these more... Um, um, "Quote unquote sophisticated uh, systems we've seen come come uh, you know on stream in the last few years have maybe turned out to be not as robust as they thought they were, but maybe our slightly simpler approach to to markets um, are again showing um, you mm -hmm. know this level of robustness. But but for people who don't know what we mean by robustness when we talk about you know system design or or, or whatever portfolio construction, I mean what 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 are what are the things that spring to mind when you think about and write about robustness and the importance of that? Now, well, one element of robustness, an important element, is that we don't get. Uh hit and disturbed and add to short-term price disturbances. Well, a very classical, traditional way of trend following was having stops in. We have never had that, but that was a very popular way. Uh, in the period when there was no electronic trading and there was no flash crashes, you could say, okay, it worked. Because in between the market and, uh, and, and the strategy, there was uh, floor brokers that uh, didn't make flash crash happen. Once the markets have become completely electronic, there is flash crashes, and they happen a lot. And using stops and having them in the market is uh, very uh, not robust, because you can be sure that if you have a flash crash, you will add to it instead of uh, being opposite to that. Right. So it's, it's a very simple way of saying, okay, uh, being robust means you're not having stops in markets because you can be very sure that short-term disturbances will hit you and uh, you will add to the disturbance. So there is yeah. where responsible investing and being robust go hand by hand in hand. I mean, a lot of strategies, I, I imagine, still uses um, 
certainly in the trend space, I mean, still uses stops. Obviously, it depends on whether you leave them in the market or whether you kind of pick them up and, mm-hmm. and execute them once they're done and all that. But but yeah, no, I mean, that that's an interesting observation. What else have you got on your plate, Moritz, before we start to to wrap up um, our conversation today? Yeah, I think we're getting uh, getting close to wrapping up, but maybe maybe one uh, one question, and uh, uh, it's a shame that our good friend Jerry isn't here. He would like that as well. We brought it up. It's the vol targeting question, which gets us going. <laughs> oh my god! Um, maybe not You're bringing maybe, that up now. Yeah, bringing it now. I, I'm, I'm oh hoping for a very god. short answer. But um, what, what's your view? I mean, why does it make sense? Or you know, just just explain your view. Would you say okay? A CTA program should have a volatility target of X, say X equals 15, and then uh, you change positions uh, maybe on a daily basis or every once in a while in order to match that precise volatility target. We never have had any volatility target. Okay, great. Answer taken. We can wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. Let's put some context on this because I, I do think it's important, right? Because, yeah, yeah. Now, it's, um, it's, it's about downside risk. So we we strive we strive to control downside risk, uh, downside risk uh, in what would happen in an extreme event. So of course, when markets are becoming more volatile, the positions will have to be smaller. If you cannot find diversification within the portfolio, uh, then you have to downsize the positions to prevent the sound downside risk from becoming too big. But there is so it this. sounds like Harold. So it sounds like just if I turn to turn to drop, because I we're kind of on the same side, I think, as you guys. Meaning, we have a daily target for our overall risk, and that, yeah. that daily target can change, that can vary. So we do adjust our positions, you know, theoretically on a daily basis. But that's based on a risk budget yes. we have to stay within. Um, Mortz comes from a different camp where he does not change his position size, right? It's it is what it is from the day yeah. one, and so so does Jerry, and that's fine as well. And then you have in this in the middle camp that we can both agree doesn't make a lot of sense, and that's the vol targeting, yeah. where you just say, oh yeah, my vol should always be fifteen percent. That I think we all agree is not how if, we if, would if, like if it. If we if we see no market move, we are not going to make all positions uh, in uh, what is it? Uh, uh, unlimited large to make sure that we have the fall that we want. Uh, if there's no movement, we should have no position and then the volatility will be zero. Um, yeah. But there's a big difference between the volatility of the program and the volatility of the markets Market. that are part of the program. Uh, now look at last March. The volatility of our program, the daily volatility, has been very, very low. The volatility of the markets in the program is huge. We have had days that we made huge profits on some positions while we made huge losses on other positions. And that's the idea with diversification. That's why we have this mm. diversification idea that we we strive for. So we are not uh, striving to have some kind of volatility that is only uh, often it uh, looking backwards, uh, it, it works great. Um, but it's it's too academic and too far away from reality. This 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 volatility targeting idea. Yeah, I think we all agree on that. Um, in terms of um, just just maybe to round off from from my side, um, overall another theme that that comes up from time to time, um, and we'll see how when it comes up next, and that is this thing about that there's too much money in trend following, and there's crowdedness, and all of those things. Um, 
what are your what are your thoughts on that? Um, if all trend followers were doing exactly the same thing, then there was too much money in trend following. If trend following CTAs are all doing different things, there's way enough room for uh, for trend followers. I think we all feel that there's not enough money in trend following. Actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but one of the reasons is because we are doing more separate things right now. But you can, it, it's very simple. You can see uh, where too much money is in it is you see a very large price movement. Uh, a, a, a fix is exploding or whatsoever and you have to see okay wh- who's buying in the exploding fix that where the overcrowded strategies as, yeah. as long as we are buying in collapsing stock markets and selling when they are going high highly up because we are uh, for some kind of reason adding positions or take volatility adjustments or whatsoever then we are not the overcrowded area it's it's where yeah. we're, where the big market moves and the extreme market moves come from, that's the area where there was overcrowding. Uh, a part of, uh, let's say, the large decline of stock markets now is also because there was somewhat too much money long stocks. So they had to come down. It, it's interesting because I, I do think that, that it's more often you hear about people complaining about overcrowdedness in trend following, yet they never talk about overcrowdedness and say risk parity. And I think last you know the last month has shown that well there probably was a bit of overcrowding yeah. in risk parity, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's uh yeah, like well there we are. There we are. What else? I mean is there anything on your mind, uh Harold, you just want to express uh, any thoughts you've had in the last couple of weeks that you think uh, is going to be interesting for people to think about discuss um, obviously we have a pretty wide audience here of uh, well the number I one thing, thing the to think about of all of us is uh, to to be uh, careful for your own health and especially for the health of your parents uh, that's very true it's, it's the number one attention at this moment and um, apart from that uh, keep on doing a thing yeah no, absolutely. Any final thoughts from you, Moritz, uh, today? I'm going to run through the market. So let's uh, run through the markets. I think we're we're approaching one and a half hours, and it's been it's been a great discussion. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, just from a, from the usual indices we follow um, as of Thursday evening. I think yesterday was a pretty quiet day, as far as I can tell. Um, but the Beta 50 index uh, was up a little bit for the month of April, which is only a few days, of course, but still down about 1.83. Uh, 1.83% for the for the year. Uh, the um, the CTA Sockgen CTA index uh, is up three quarters of a percent, and uh, you know slightly up for the year. Then the trend index, which I think the three of us uh, would belong to, so to speak, in terms of uh, peer group, up one percent for April already, up 3.3% for the month, uh, sorry for the year. The short-term traders index up a fraction, quarter percent so far in April, but uh, up 4.2 percent for the year. And the bro, the flat fee index, the bridge alternatives, up a percent in April so far, and uh, up 4.22 percent for the year. Um, I mean, I think if if we're pretty much feels for this time, we've we've done. Let, let's wrap it up. I mean, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. We certainly did, Moritz and I. It was great to have you on, Harold. We'll do it again soon. Uh, without a doubt. Uh, and make sure, by the way, um, I know we didn't get to any questions today from uh, the audience, but if you have any questions, as usual, send them to top info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to get them on the show. And of course, you can follow both Harold, I'm sure, or Transtrend, Moritz and, I, and, and myself on Twitter and other social media. From Harold, Moritz, me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as Harold said, Stay safe. 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.